debate on national insurance has gained momentum in recent times. Following the Minister of State responsible for national insurance, Miles Lerota's declaration that the contribution rate must increase to save the fund. The position of Minister Lerota has gained varying feedbacks from those on one end of the spectrum that totally agree with him to those on the other end who believe that the tax burden on the Bohemian people is too high and the government must look at other creative ways to save the fund. No matter which side of the argument one supports, it is widely believed that national insurance is the most important social program in the country to protect working people against loss of income relating to sickness or unemployment and to provide retirement income to those at risk of poverty in old age. The National Insurance Board, which manages national insurance contributions, began in 1974. But even before the Bahamas National Insurance Act, the United Kingdom, which followed the example of Germany in providing compulsory national insurance against sickness, enacted its National Insurance Act in 1911. The scheme, which was originally a system of health insurance for industrial workers in Great Britain, was based on contributions from employers, the government, and the workers themselves, and later expanded to form a wider social safety welfare system. So national insurance is not unique to the Bahamas, which allows for access to a wealth of knowledge to implement the necessary reforms that will make this essential social safety net service sustainable and available for this generation of Bahamians and more in the future. As the debate rages on, we can only hope that the government resist the temptation for temporary fixes and seek to research and implement reforms that will strengthen national insurance and improve its sustainability. Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of CFAL Talks. I am Pamela Ferguson, Vice President of Investments here at CFAL and joining me in studio today are my colleagues Lachelle White, Investment Manager and Angelo Butler, Senior Analyst at CFAL. In today's episode, we will take a look at our national insurance scheme and discuss what is needed to strengthen this very important social safety net program. So tell us, Michelle and Angelo, what is national insurance and what is it used for? Well, as you alluded to in the introduction, national um, insurance is the Bahamas' social um, security system, basically. So the system offers comprehensive benefits and income for old age, um, disability, injury on the job, as well as unemployment insurance. And there is also maternity and sickness benefits. National insurance also has a prescription drug plan, which covers medication for chronic illnesses. So in summary, the National Insurance Board provides 10 cash benefits, four cash assistances, and one benefit in kind. And those assistances are also provided to needy um, Bahamian residents who do not qualify for a particular benefit, but um, they are given um, assistance after a test of resources, as they would call it. So the plan is, um, the scheme is quite comprehensive. And it is just meant to assist persons from, like you said, um, going into poverty. So you, even if you have not contributed, you would get um, access to things like old age pension as well as unemployment insurance. Yeah, you know, I view national insurance as um, an acceptance by policymakers that, you know, we're all different. We all have different experiences. 
um, you know, we make different salaries. Um, so all of us are not um, the same. And this is kind of a backstop for everyone or a system that, you know, looks at everyone as saying, um, you know, we'll have this support or social safety net um, in the event that things happen. You know, persons sometimes get sick. Um, you know, you may become disabled. Um, but nonetheless, you know, without these social security systems in the world, you know, a lot of people will get um, left behind and not that they're perfect, but they are, you know, a meaningful part of societies today. And you see um, governments all around the world promoting them and, you know, doing what it takes to keep them going because, um, you know, a large segment of society depends on the assistance that these programs provide. Yeah, and so I looked at the International Labor Organization 11th Actuary Evaluation on National Insurance Board. That was at the end of 2018, and they normally do it every five years. So I guess at the end of this year, we should expect another report. And it said that the uh, number of persons covered under national insurance or number of workers is 163,000 from age 15 to 64. So it tells you... uh, how important this is and the number of persons that it takes care of or that are contributing to national insurance. What I thought, though, was interesting was that the number of employed persons in 2018, November of 2018, was 210 plus thousand persons. So that means we have a gap there um, in terms of persons who are participating in national insurance compared to those who are actually employed. So I think more needs to be done. Um, on, in that vein to, to encourage or to find mechanism that everybody who is working in the country is contributing to national insurance. So what is the current national insurance rate? And let's discuss if this is a tax and whether it's regressive or progressive. Um, well, the current rates of contributions are 3.9%. For the employee and 5.9% for the employer. For self-employed persons, the contribution rate is 8.8%. And that rate would be based on um, the their income level at the beginning of the year. So they would determine their income level at the beginning of the year and they'll pay 8.8% on that every month. And for persons who are um, salaried workers, um, they would pay the, the employee and employer would pay the 3.9% and the 5.9%. The contributions are meant to be deducted every month, um, paid to national insurance every month. In terms of it being, I see it um, as a tax. The contributions are taken from your salary before you even it's even paid to you. So it's meant to be deducted from your salary before it's even paid to you. Now, while I say it's a tax, it doesn't necessarily mean I think that it's a bad thing. Like I said, it's a social um, security safety net. And even if um, you never have to use it um, in your lifetime, maybe just when you get a pension, it still um, benefits other people in society who may not have um who may not be able to access, uh, say, a regular pension or a regular insurance, um, get regular insurance coverage or pension coverage. So I think that it is an important part of society, but I do think that it's a tax and it may be slightly regressive in that everybody basically pays um, the same rate and has access to the same contributions. But I guess that it may be, some persons may see that as fair, but I think that for persons who are making um, lower income, it's going to be a higher chunk of, um, of their income than somebody who's um, near, who's making 
Yeah, they only pay up to a certain amount. They call it the ceiling. So you only have to pay up to a certain amount in contributions. And I think the, you know, the structure of a lot of our taxes in the Bahamas is um, very aggressive. And um, I think the NIB contribution plan is also aggressive. You know, I remember when I was a bit um, young, I asked, you know, why is there a cap on wages, right? I, I figure you would just make people pay um, up to the maximum or just pay the rate across what they earn. And, and you know, someone said, well, if they increase the cap, then they have to increase the benefit um, ceiling that's paid out. So, you know, that in itself doesn't really fix it. But I mean, too, you know, if this is something that's seen as being for the wider good, um, you know, and, you know, maybe this is not a popular thing, but, you know, maybe everyone pays, um, you know, a set rate across their entire salary, but the benefit may, you know, given the circumstances of the fund, you may still have to cap um, the benefit. So those who make a bit more will pay a bit more, although they may get um, less in the long run. But again, these things are viewed on a wider scale, right? This is, you know, I view NIB as something that's for the greater good, right? So it isn't, oh, I put in $100, I want to get back out um, $100. Some people put in $10 and get 20 whereas some put in 100 and they get, you know, nothing um, over time. So, but at the end of the day, it's, you know, an insurance plan. It's, it's you know, we look at insurance in many cases as being problematic. You know, they say, oh, you, you, <laughs> you spend your money, you'll get nothing it. back. Um, but I mean, if you don't get anything from insurance, then that's a good thing, right? That means nothing really happens. Not necessarily happened. because you paid a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, you know, if you don't claim on your home insurance, that means your house didn't really get damaged, which is good, right? But, you know, when things go catastrophically wrong, it's when you get the benefit um, of these things. So I think it's important to understand, you know, that component of insurance and not look at this as, oh, you know, if I pay more, I want to get more. Um, but I know that can be very controversial for, you know, a politician or a government official to tell someone, hey, you're going to pay more, but your benefit is not going to change. You know, in order to get a better understanding of national insurance, I tend to research what the how the plan worked in the UK, because that's where we got our national insurance um, from. And in the UK, the government says uh, their statement is that it's not a tax because there's a separate fund. They have a separate fund set aside um, for national insurance, and it's for a specific purpose. But national insurance is the second main revenue generator for the government. National insurance contribution is on their books as a revenue generator. Um, but everybody else in the UK, everybody else <laughs> labels it a tax um, because for persons who don't have, let's say, an investment portfolio or rental income and their salary is their only means of income, then it's it's similar to income tax for a lot of persons. So in that regard, whether it's a tax or not, it is something that is important and I think we need to do more to preserve it. So when you look at somebody, let's say the person that makes minimum wage, which is now $260, their contribution will be about $10.14 per week. And then the employer, which will pay 5.9%, the employer will pay $15.34 per week for a total amount of about $25.48 for the week. Their insurable earnings ceiling now is about $710 of our salary. And so it's regressive because, in my view, the person that makes $1,000 per week is only paying 
on amounts up to $710. And so when you take that out and you put that over the $1,000, their effective rate is really lower than the person who was making minimum wage. And that's where I believe it's unfair, right? But what the UK does is there's an amount below which persons don't pay national insurance. And there's an amount after you reach that threshold, which is 967 pounds, you pay 2% um, contribution rate on your salary. So I think something fair like that will help it to be more equitable because right now it isn't. That person who is making all of that money is paying a less contribution rate than the person who is making minimum wage. And we don't have a situation where <laughs> um, we say, well, okay, if you're making minimum wage, you don't pay national insurance. Everybody in the country that is working is paying national insurance. And I think, you know, um, on the employment side of things, the reason I think that maybe is because generally speaking, a large number of the citizenry makes um, minimum wage or a relatively low wage. And so if you if they go to exclude those persons, then they may find, okay, maybe half of the current um, contributors, their contribution just goes away. And given the state of the fund, you know, I think that while it's something that should be considered, I think is something they would, you know, very, or the government would balk at um, in terms of considering. But it is a valid point that, you know, it is regressive. Um, and I think, you know, if you make it more progressive, you could find ways to provide that relief to those persons um, by letting those who make a bit more pay a bit more. What are some of these alternatives? Well, the I think an alternative is to, um, and I think the consolidated fund um, is already very broad. And, you know, they say everything just goes in there and um, it's, you know, it comes out of there. Um, but I mean, you know, if you look at, I think in the National Insurance Act, you know, it says somewhere that the government ultimately is liable if, you know, the fund can't meet um, its expenses. So, Behind the scenes, it's a contingent liability um, on the government. You know, if I mean, we still have some reserves, so we're you know years away from being to the point where you know government would actively need to step in to provide cash to provide um, benefits. But nonetheless, you know, it is a government problem. Um, it's not on the books, but you know, behind the scenes, it's pretty much there. So, like you mentioned, you know, in the UK, um, it's a tax; it goes into revenue. Um, and I guess the expenditure comes out as expenditures, but I'm not sure that may that will provide um, much benefit per se. Um, you know, it'll just be I guess more bit keeping track of the accounting in the annual budget cycle. Um, but I mean, we do need a bit more transparency on NIB too, so maybe that would help that. Um, you know, you don't really get the reports um, as often and on time. So, but I think that's an alternative. But at the end of the day, I'm not sure if it provides much benefit per se. The Act says that the minister responsible for national insurance can consult with the Minister of Finance and they can make investment decisions on behalf um, of the fund. I personally think for our social uh, security fund, that's problematic. The Act also said that uh, monies in the fund can be used for healthcare infrastructure. Now, we can argue that that's good. But if you continue to deplete the fund with uh, investments in what you call healthcare infrastructure and there's no return coming back to the fund, that's going to be problematic. There are lots of ways where money is leaking out of the fund and that is contributing to its investment returns, which by extension will contribute to the need for us having to increase 
the contribution. So I I just feel that there are, are, are ways that we can look at better managing this fund. Like you take, for instance, Canada. Canada has, they call it the Canadian Pension Plan. Um, it's not, it's similar to the national, our national insurance from the employment um, perspective. And what Canada has done in recent times, it has moved the management or the investments from government and put it into uh, a separate independent company where there's arm's length relationship between the board and their federal government and the provinces in terms of managing um, the monies. I think we need to adapt Canada's approach in removing the management of the fund away from government and set up an independent body that government has oversight and allow them to manage um, the fund for us. And I think, like you mentioned, you know, with the ministers and, and how it all operates, I think we all know that, you know, while we have oppositions and, um, you know, supposed backbench um, inside the government that, you know, is the government of the day, uh, for the most part, you know, ministers don't really step out of line. So it, it's it's kind of, you know, we don't have much checks and balances. If the government wants something to be done, it's just done. So, you know, that's another problem, I think. And, you know, can we get politicians, you know, do they have the political will to really give up um, that power and, you know, give up that control? We know um, NIB and government agencies are ripe for, you know, providing jobs and, you know, getting um, benefits to supporters and so forth. So, you know, is that political will there to get these things out of the government hands? Because right now it's it's pretty much full control and our governments with these super majorities can do whatever they want um, when they're in government. So how can national insurance contributions be used for economic development and help spur economic growth? Yeah, I think in previous years, you would have seen NIB, in, in simple terms, it was a cash cow, right? It was bringing in a lot of cash and in its early stages as well. It wasn't paying out as much today because, of course, you know, you have more retirees in 2023 than you did, um, say, in 2008 or the year um, 2000. So now it, it's at a point where, you know, cash coming in is quickly going out as opposed to previous times when you had that cash coming in and cash just sitting there. And of course, you know, governments um, and the officials that run the board um, use those cash to make investments. Unfortunately, you know, a lot, you find that a lot of them are buildings and, um, you know, a lot of NIB's exposures to government again, which is a problem, right? Because um, if government has to step in when NIB come, gets in problems and, you know, some of NIB problems may be the government um, taking long to pay contributions or not paying its rent or lease. Um, however, it's not like Enron. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, it, it's it's pretty much a lot of government exposure, and I think we need to get away from that. I think every infrastructure project um, in this country, from here on out, you know, NIB should have a three to four or five percent um, stake in it. You know, any large tourist tourism development. You know, if we're I know we're beginning to mention a sovereign wealth fund and a national. Um, well, fun, but you know, NIB is our, I would say, best form of that right now, or closest form um, of that. It's something that benefits every Bahamian, and you know, it should be um, crucial in terms of any sort of you know new investment now. So that as the country benefits, if we're going to keep going into tourism and these projects, um, you know, we should benefit as a country. Yeah, if you look at NIB, there's a large chunk exposure to government bonds. And there is a relatively large chunk exposure to loans to government corporations or to government entities. 
and then the government also um, we've seen the the, the government purchase uh, NIB purchase buildings from the government that is just sitting there idle, not earning anything. All of these um, are investments. And when I looked at it, I think the average return over a six or so year period uh, for NIB was like 4%. That's lower than prime, which is currently 4.25%. So something is wrong on the investment side. And so like you mentioned, Angelo, it would be nice if some of the monies, if you say we're going to earmark, let's say 20% of the fund for local infrastructure investment, you know, we, we, we could use it. And NIB can invest towards it to help build the infrastructure and for us to offer our visitors um, attractions and also for us to, to, to possibly have a better quality of life with improved infrastructure in our country. So the money is there to make the investments, but because there's this lack of transparency and because it is managed by government, then they can make whatever investments that they choose to, and these investments don't bring a return and the fund suffers. So I mentioned some investments. Uh, do you believe that Nash, the National Insurance Fund is in good health? Well, like I mentioned earlier, if the fund is not, um, if the fund, even if it's making positive returns, if it's not outpacing the rate of inflation in PAM, you alluded to it that it's the, the average return over six years was less than the prime rate. And you would expect that it would make at least the prime rate <laughs> um, because, you know, that's our, that's basically a benchmark rate um, for local investments. Um, so I think, I don't think we can go on like this. It's going to be, if it's not making enough money to cover um, present and future benefits, it can't make enough money if it goes on like this. Um, I don't think that you can say it's in good health. You know, I look at the chart um, from the report that was in December of 2018, and you see, generally speaking, where the total income has increased. So let's take two, 2016 because they, they mentioned that since 2016, they've had a deficit, right? And so you see the total income for the National Insurance Fund was like $314 plus million. And then it increased in 2017 to $332 plus million. And then 2018, it increased to $352 plus million. So that's a good sign overall when you see the steady increase. And it increased because the contribution income um, also increased and also some investment income. There was a slight increase as well in investment income. But the problem I think that we are having is on the expenditure side. Now, you can't control um, benefits. Benefits are where they are, and the fund is there to pay benefits. And if you, if you were to take the total income and you subtract the benefits from that, which has been increasing, you would be in a surplus, but I think what an important aspect that needs to be looked at is the general and administrative cost that's also increasing. So I see where in 2016 it went from 52 plus million, and then it was declined slightly in 2017 to 50 plus million, and then in 2018 it went to 58 plus million. So I think there needs to be a decision to cap the general and administrative costs and try to use technology and other means to make the fund more efficient and to make the work more productive. Recently, there has been talks about national health 
insurance and I see some work going on in encouraging persons to sign up, do you think we can implement a system similar to the UK National Insurance Program and combine national health insurance to our national insurance scheme and increase the rate to fund both programs? Yeah, I would. I think that you can combine it. I think that you have to combine it because I don't think um, NHI, I do think um, NHI is important, especially for those persons who do not have access to private insurance. But the um, the NHI scheme needs to be funded. And I think eventually we're going to have to be taxed. And I think the current national insurance scheme is our best bet of um, taxing persons for national health insurance. But you have to be um, transparent about it. Um, if, for example, you increase um, the rate to 7.5%, you would have to say, um, "I well, 5% will go to your national insurance contributions, and then the other 2.5% would go to your NH, uh, NHI contributions. And they have to be kept separate. You can't just say, oh, this is all in one. We don't want another consolidated fund within the national insurance fund. I think that you have to properly manage it so you know how much contributions you're getting for national health insurance and how much contributions you're getting for the regular national insurance. But I do think that it would make sense to um, to combine them. Yeah, I, I, I agree totally. As opposed to uh, setting up a separate fund for national health fund, more insurance administrative and more costs. administrative costs and <laughs> yeah. more, more complaints about the fund going to, uh, going to be depleted by a certain period of time and then Furthermore, increasing the tax burden on the Bahamian people. And I looked at some recommendations that were made in the report, and it said by 2029, they want to increase the contribution rate, the total contribution rate for national insurance to 16.9%. No, this is in the Bahamas. In the Bahamas, Bahamas. by 2029, they want to increase, and that would be a split between the employer and the employee. And they are looking at a contribution rate of 32% by 2078. And what increased benefits are we going so, to get? <laughs> that, is, that is absolutely not sustainable. I mean, if you look at the UK that has their program enrolled in one, the individual or the employee contribution rate is 12% and the employer is 13.8%. And like I mentioned, that their program is really expansive. I mean, they don't have to have cookouts when <laughs> someone gets sick because it covers all of that. So if you're talking about that level of increase in the rate, there it has to be more benefits attached to that. And, and, and we must look at this fund and see how we could better manage it because that's a big factor in why the fund isn't making as much money as they think it should. So, Angelo, do you think that mandatory pension legislation can coexist with national insurance and national health insurance? Well, as you mentioned, with the expected rate by um, 2029 of 16.9%, right? Um, I, you know, I think truly it's, it will be impossible to get to those rates, Um Politically, socially, I, I just don't see how we realistically can get to um, those rates. And even worse, you know, 38% of an individual salary. I think, you know, if you get to that point, maybe it's time to let people manage their own, um, you know, pension um, scheme because paying 
I assume the 38 would be like 20% individual, 20% employer, just roughly. I mean, that's ridiculous, I would say, um, for one benefit. Um, so, you know, I think the government will have challenges getting this rate up. And so I think they will find it difficult to also then tack on a mandatory um, pension. And while it would be good um, for everyone, I, you know, deep down, we all need to save for retirement. I know, you know, some of us live for today and some persons at the same time don't make sufficient to possibly, you know, um, take an additional, say, 5 or 10% um, out of their salary. So I think it's, you know, practically, um, it's something that sounds good, right? I think given what the government is faced with, trying to rescue the fund and save the fund, I think we're far away from being able to combine both of them. But I think it's, it's, it's needed because you can have somebody who is working and have a good quality of life while they're working but in retirement can be poor because there's no income coming in. They didn't save for retirement and they have absolutely no financial resources to rely upon. And so I think it's very important if we are going to improve the social safety fabric of this country. Angelo and the Shell, we have come to the end of another episode of CFAL Talks. Thank you so much for your contribution to the discussion and thank you audience for tuning in. If you enjoyed this podcast episode, please send us a note at info at cfile.com or visit our website at www.cfile.com and show your support. Thank you CFAL for sponsoring this episode. Until next time.